Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In the Psychologist's Chair with host Dr. Raymond Hamden. Our program will feature global guests joining Dr. Hamden for a psychological interview. And through their experiences, you will explore the human depth of understanding their purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Raymond Hamden. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and you are in the psychologist's chair. Today, our guest is Robert Heiserman, an immigration lawyer from the state of Colorado. Mr. Heisman, welcome to the show, and thank you for being in the psychologist's chair. Thank you for inviting me. There's not too many people like you. <laughs> Immigration lawyers are hard to find. Well, there are about 14,000 in the U.S. In just the United States? That's correct. 14,000. How many of them are doing international work in the way that you are, though? I'd say almost all immigration lawyers do international work, but my work is with the uh, borders and with the State Department on visas. So you do a lot of work around the world in many different countries, then? Yes. What are some of the cases that you deal with? Many of my cases involve waivers. People who are otherwise eligible have some inadmissibility or difficulty. I have to then ask the government to give them a waiver. So how do you do that? How do you get a government waiver? It seems like laws are pretty well set in the United States for immigration. They are set. This is an interesting waiver because there are three requirements. One, that the person be eligible. Two, that the consul wants to grant the visa. And three, that it serves some national purpose. It, and that includes shopping. Does that mean that you have to be creative in what you do to find out what it means to have those exceptions to the rule? I think from time to time, most of my clients create situations which are in themselves creative. So it's just a matter of finding out what's going on. So the typical kind of cases are usual waiver cases, or are these the more difficult kind of cases that are questionable in some way? Well, they're all questionable because they're their request to the government to use their authority to waive some restriction. The government doesn't want to waive restrictions typically because if they waive all the restrictions, there's no reason to have a rule. Everybody goes into a profession because of their personalities. We know that lawyers like to make sure that they guard human rights. What was it about your history that attracted you to the field of law? You know, I think I like the idea of uh, standing up for myself I didn't always do that. And when I gained more confidence and believed in myself a little more, I found a way to help others do that. And I, that's where I get a lot of my satisfaction. Were you born and raised in Colorado? No. Born and raised, uh, well, born in El Paso, Texas. I've lived in 11 states, 17 cities, and Western Europe. I'm an everywhere kid. You certainly are. You sound like a nomad. <laughs> I am. Yeah, an American nomad. So your state now of residence is Colorado. That's correct. But you don't spend very much time there. You're all over the world. I'm there about 60% of the time. 
That's pretty much. Well, how many countries have you been in? Have you counted them? Oh, gosh, no. I have no idea. You usually go to Europe, Middle East, Asia. Where else do you go? Everywhere. Anywhere you, where there's a special problem requiring some atten attention to a local detail. So how is it that people know to get, get a hold of you? I think it's because I've been doing it so long. I know a lot of people. I get calls from clients from 35, almost 40 years ago. So you've been doing this quite a while. I How have. old are you? Well, emotionally, I'm 20 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> that was your last birthday. That was my last one, but I'm uh, 65 and uh, cruising on by that. Well, good for you. Now, when you're doing this cruising throughout the world, uh, of course, I don't think that you Tom cruised off of the tallest building in the world, which is down the street from where we're doing the recording today. We're happened to, we happen to be in Dubai today doing this recording. And you happen to be here for several reasons. One of them, of course, is the immigration law process. When you were growing up, the state that you grew up in also was Iowa. Is that not correct? Iowa was part of it, yes. It's my... How many years did you spend there? Oh, gosh, not long. That was maybe a year and a half. What did your dad do? My dad was a fighter pilot in the Army Air Corps, and then he became a corporate executive. And your mom? Mom was a housewife. She ran everything. So she had a full-time job. She did. Dad got to have fun. Yes, he was having a good time. Isn't that great when you can have a hobby for a career and get paid for it? And have a wife who was his best friend. They were married 52 years. Oh, that's beautiful. Brothers and sisters? I have one sister. I'm very lucky. I have a great sister. Well, that's terrific. Is she older or younger? She's younger. Mm. What do you guys do together as brother and sister? Actually, we uh, we bring our families together. She uh, she and I make sure that our kids spend time together. And um, she loves to hunt and fish. I don't really particularly hunt, but uh, I like watching her do it. So. Uh -huh. Yeah, and how many children do you have? I have one daughter. And what does she do for her career? She's an analyst of power systems. Um, sounds very smart to me. It must be also a proud thing to realize that intelligence is inherited, right? Well, it could be a generation-skipping trait in my case. <laughs> I doubt that. Dummies don't go to law school and make it out. I did. Let's yeah, talk sure. about immigration law, though. Why yeah. immigration law? Why not all the other different kind of laws that you could have gone into, even becoming a judge, prosecutor, defense attorney, having your own television show now, or being one of those television judges? But why immigration law? I liked immigration law because, as you asked earlier, what personality trait would lead someone into something? And I, I just like to include people. I'm, I'd look for situations where I can bring somebody in. And you sound like the Statue of Liberty. Well, <laughs> are they, are they going to put one of you next to the Statue of Liberty in New York now? Oh, I think they're much better images. But uh, I do like to bring in, we have the huddled masses, we have the people in trouble, but we also have the well-heeled business people and the entertainment groups, the sports groups, the athletes. So it's scientists, doctors, engineers. That kind Let's of thing. look at the reality, though. Bad people try to get into good countries. Well, of course. How do you handle that situation? Well, actually, the way the system works in the U.S., uh, it's, it's really good. What it does is it puts us in the position of advising before any action is taken. So we get to evaluate the case as we first see it. If we think it's inappropriate, then we decline to have anything to do with it. That's, that's really a great option in the U.S. system. So you do investigative law then? Oh, yeah, all the time. And what is the criteria right now that's set up for lawyers? Are lawyers obliged to be investigators as well? They are. The standard's very simple. The lawyer is required to take at face value what is told to them. 
are offered unless the lawyer knows that it's wrong. How much time of your life do you put into being a productive lawyer? As much as I can. I, uh, some days are not productive, but I, it's most of my time. What do you do for hobbies? I love to read. I uh, like to sit still and not go anywhere. It's a great hobby. So what do you read? I read uh, mostly nonfiction. Like what kind of novels? I like history. Uh, novels, novels. I kind of like action novels. I like, uh, like novels that aren't particularly science fiction or fanciful. I like complex stories. And how about the history thing that you like? What's that about? I just like history. I discovered that in high school. Any kind of history? Particularly like, uh, I like U.S. history. I like New York State history for some reason. I just got into that in high school. Well, compared to the rest of the world, that's pretty short reading. It's only about 250-some <laughs> years old, it's right? A fairly short span, but a, a rich one. Yeah. What about comparative history, where you look at Europe, and that's a big history, as well as Asia, even Africa, South America? you see any parallels in the way people have behaved over the years at constitutes the need for lawyers and helping protect human rights? What a great question. I, I, I love this question. My history includes individual histories of various places that I go to. And by the way, reading a novel about a, a, a place you haven't been to is a very good way to get into a local area. On the comparative histories, we see things uh, in, the, in the 1800s, uh, the exploration of Central and South Central America, for example, the trade in various spices and various uh, products in Indonesia, the exportation of currency, the development of currency. And that, of course, involves uh, the Dutch, uh, the English, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese. And you see these issues repeated over and over again, which takes me to my other hobby, which is rotary. I enjoy Rotary. You're talking about Rotary International, the international organization. The organization with um, about 33,000 clubs and about 1.4 million members, depending on who's counting. Which is a lot more than the United Nations has offices. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people. And a lot of work. Well, it's, we, it's work, but it's rewarding. And that's your actual pet. That's that is, something you're very, very fond of. As a matter of fact, I'm not surprised if you would ever drive up in a Rotary International car one day with a Rotary International hat and, uh, and I, sweater. I do have the, all the gear. <laughs> you actually did a major campaign for Rotary very recently on polio. I did. Light up buildings. We, we have a, a Rotary birthday, February 23rd. Around the world, iconic buildings are lit up with huge, huge projected images of end polio now. In Denver, which isn't a large history, large building city, we actually lit up two buildings with those images in February. That's just two out of how many, though? Well, there was only one other building in the U.S., I think, at that, in that year. Oh, I thought you were looking at other buildings to be lit up as well. Oh, no, I only did the Denver portion. The other portions are all over the world. The Sydney Opera House, the London Parliament, the Giza Pyramids, great buildings and uh, historic yeah, places. Yeah, it sounds like the there's world. many, many dozens of buildings around the world on the polio campaign. Yes. We're going to talk about post-polio as well. That's something that you've been wanting to do internationally, is set up a conference on post-polio. I'd like to do that. I probably should explain I had post-polio. And for those of you who are fortunate enough not to know what that is, that is polio staying with whoever it strikes as a child. It just comes back when it wants to. So I've had it a second time. A number of people have had it. 
there's not enough information about post-polio in the world, and some of us want to bring that out. What was the first signs of polio when you were a little child? I was four and a half. I don't remember much about it, but my parents said it, it was like having a cold or a flu, headachey, achy, weak. What state were you in? We were moving from New York to Miami, and in transit, I picked it up. My sister did not have any effect at all. Polio is very specific. That was before the salt vaccination. That's correct. Uh, so that was around 1950. It was in the early, fi- my, mine was at, uh, I was four and a half. So I was about 51. And so the treatment at the time, if it was properly diagnosed, would have been what back then? I can tell you how I remember it. It's um, my strongest memory is of the nurses who took care of me. And it just, that was the healing effect that I had, was the, just the attention, the kindness. That may also have something to do with my choosing the work that I do, because I think it's very powerful to pay attention to someone and, and help them. But you were you ever put in the big lung machine? No. I did not have to do that because my chest muscles were not affected. It was only my right arm. Okay. So your right arm was affected, and you had polio come to you twice, which is why you're referring to post-polio. That's the post-polio. Actually, it's a nerve sheath disorder. The virus stays in the body, and it just it sits there dormant until it decides to become active. And nobody knows how or where or when. Not yet. Well, we're looking at talking to Robert Heiserman, an immigration lawyer who's with us today in the psychologist chair. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. Thanks for being with us. We're going to be back in just a few minutes to talk more about immigration law, Rotary International, some of the different campaigns that this wonderful gentleman has invested in for the sake of the community, the country, and the world at large. We'll be back in just a few minutes. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and you are in the psychologist chair. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. Our program will help you to heal yourself, support those around you, and enhance your work and your relationships. Healing can be physical, emotional, or spiritual, and it can be personal or collective for the healing of our planet. Dr. Allison and her guests will offer methods of healing that will go beyond your life and reach the lives of others. Tune in to the Empowered Healer Show, airing live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're back in the Psychologist Chair with Robert Heiserman, an immigration lawyer from the great state of Colorado. By the way, why did you never go into politics? <laughs> I possibly am not diplomatic enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought the idea was to be a politician, you don't have to be diplomatic. <laughs> I think you just have to make everyone believe they've, they're hearing what they want to hear. But you do must work with politicians quite a bit to do the work that you do effectively. We do. Um, my basic theory is that they should be free to make law and review agencies and interact on behalf of people. I think they expect me to solve the problems. And so we just we don't just hand the problem over to a politician. Have you been part of the decision-making in law-making on immigration? Have you ever been consulted on that? Four years, yes. But I'm not a significant player. We have an organization of 14,000 lawyers with a whole staff of professionals. They do it all the time. Are there immigration lawyers all over the world, or is it mostly in the United States that would have immigration lawyers? I believe it's mostly in the United States because we have in the U.S. a legal system that requires a lot of compliance, and anyone who's dealt with it knows there are a lot of forms, a lot of papers, a lot of questions. You've been coming to Dubai as one of your main stops, and that's because Dubai happens to be a brilliant hub. It joins east and west. It's a good crossroads. Good, the bad, and the ugly come through here as well. But you spend time here. The kind of people that you're meeting here and the people that want to go to the United States, some of them may be for medical reasons, some of them may be for political asylum cases. What would you say about those kinds of cases that you've engaged? The cases here are mostly in the temporary category. The temporary categories are uh, typically approved here. So there really aren't a lot of issues for local people to encounter in the visa process. It comes up, however, in my world when they put together a business plan. And that business plan has people from other countries or operating in other countries, and they need to move an operation to the U.S. or do banking in the U.S. That's where my kind of work comes in. I'm glad you mentioned the banking thing. In a recent article in the United States, it talks about a group of people who may have been from one of the Middle Eastern countries that wanted to do some 
maneuvering of car sales from the United States to the Middle East and to other parts of the world, those kind of things may be quite suspicious. Well, actually, the most innocent things can be suspicious. You could spend your whole lifetime worrying about these things. However, in the car repair and reselling business, there have been some developments. Cars uh, in bad shape were fixed up in the U.S. and shipped to Africa. Those sales made it made their way to the New York Times in a big story about money laundering. The car value, I think, being behind the money laundering. Certainly not to teach the audience how to do money laundering, but tell us about it. How does that actually work? How do you laundry money by selling cars that have been fixed up somewhere in the world? You know, if I really knew, I guess uh, I'd be a more valuable person. <laughs> We'd be having another interview. We'd be we? having a different interview. <laughs> but what I read about and what, I, what I've encountered is simply the valuation from one port to another. If someone wants to buy sweaters from one country and they want to trade it for shoes in another country and they need to do the financing in another country, there are different points of value when items are shipped. That includes the money. So if money is valued differently from point A to point B, there's sometimes a customs duty and sometimes the customs duty cannot be determined accurately. I believe that's how a lot of this transactional money So it might not actually be stuffing money in the car doors and transporting the car. It actually becomes the sale of a particular product at one value being resold at a different value at another location. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, that's essentially what it is, I think. I don't believe there are many people going around the Caribbean with Halliburton briefcases stuffed with $1,000 bills. <laughs> that's for the movies. <laughs> <clears throat> that is for the movies and probably a good one where you're a star in it, I'm sure. But what about, <clears throat> what about the legal aspect? Do you have a responsibility to warn or to report when these kind of situations come before you? This is another great question. You've been doing your reading. Well, this every is, once in a while I have a good, great question, so just stick around. We've got two more segments is, of the show. Good. good. This, this is a good one. In U.S. law, lawyers are required to keep their conversations and information with their clients secret. And Even the bad guys. Even the bad guys. Or bad girls. Oh, the bad girls are the bad everybody, bad organizations. The principle is to give everyone a place to go with a question. We, the lawyers, then privately resolve a lot of matters by saying that cannot be done. This cannot be done. Don't do that. When we say that, we usually mean it. Your job is to promote the laws of the United States because you're an American lawyer, but it's also in coordination with other decent civil laws that are compatible to the United States. How often is it that you might even have to not only recommend to people how to stay within some form of ethical boundaries, but actually report other lawyers that might even be involved in doing the bad things? Your questions just keep getting better. Here, here's here's my, my short answer on that. The short answer is the lawyer is supposed to keep things to themselves. Banks report suspicious activity. So if some suspicious person goes into a bank, the bank is required in most countries and most places to report it. And in fact, the bank doesn't tell the person coming in that they think they're suspicious. Lawyers are not supposed to do that except for United Kingdom. France and Belgium, they do not report. England does. And the U.S. has recently been asked to join that through the Financial Action Task Force request. And the U.S. has, through the American Bar Association, said... 
we don't want to do that. We want to use our judgment lawyer by lawyer, client by client. Being a psychology program, I do have to ask you, do you ever have the requirement for clinical forensic psychologist to do evaluations with you as part of your investigation of people that you're having to deal with? If we're investigating people, uh, it's, it's not common for me to use that. However, where we have an applicant who has been damaged, assessment of that damage really should be done only by a qualified professional. There are some psychologists who actually specialize in immigration law psychology. That's how unique and scientifically founded this particular profession is. It's almost become a science in itself just to do immigration law, which suggests that the laws must change quite frequently. And you have to stay on top of things as to what is happening with the laws. Since 9-11, September 11th, 2001, and I'm not blaming you for that, I'm just bringing up the, the, the day, what has happened as far as immigration law to make your job more difficult or more easy? Actually, I don't evaluate it as more difficult or more easy. It's different. The technology has advanced. The concerns have changed. What we look for has changed. And what we expect the government to understand has changed. They do have much more information. Can you be more specific sure. as to what your job would be? Uh, would it be easier to an investigation because you know that the government that you're assisting or the people that you're assisting have more documented information now? Yes. Here's a good example. In the years after 9-11, it took a couple of years for this to happen. Offenses like a petty offense, a theft case from 35 years ago in a small town in New Jersey would have gone unnoticed but for the technological advances. Now when people are asked, why didn't you report that earlier? It's often the lawyer who has the responsibility of saying, we can check that, and that's what we do. We help people, we help people when they're reciting their histories. So what your process of doing is to help people find a way that they can legitimately get into the United States. Yeah, of course. Not everybody agrees with what you're doing. There's a few people, fortunately not a majority, but I guess those few tend to be rich enough they'd like to look like a majority that really don't want people from outside coming in. What is the population percentages now of Americans who are born in America, Americans who have been imported and got citizenship, and those who are actually illegal in the United States right now? You know, it depends on who's asking and who's counting. I think that the common understanding is about 11 to 13 million people in the U.S. who do not have status one way or another. Would you be helping them as well? Of course. The law provides waivers and remedies if individuals come forward. The law requires them to tell the truth. It makes, it makes a requirement that they not have criminal problems. If they have criminal problems, they, need, they even need a lawyer more. Canada has immigration lawyers. There's not actually very many of them. But there's a few of them, and even here in Dubai, there's one firm that does nothing but Canadian immigration. And they do quite a, quite a nice job, and they stay within the ethical realms of the laws of their country. Is there much difference between immigration to Canada, immigration to the United States, immigration to Mexico? And I mentioned these three countries because they're part of the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Association. I think the differences are uh, harder to find between Canada and U.S. Mexico is 
quite different. I'm not an expert on either of those countries. However, we work with those lawyers. And I'll just put in a plug in for my Canadian lawyer friends. That group is a very professional and respectful group. They're very, very proper lawyers. Very correct. Uh, Mexican lawyers, Mexican lawyers are also that way. The lawyers who hold these positions are at the higher end of the food chain, and they typically are very honorable people. Do you ever get involved with adoption cases, international adoption cases, where people from other countries are adopting and they want to come to the United States or they've adopted from the United States even though they're not citizens and want to reside in the United States? I did that when I was younger. These are high-cost cases. There's a lot of energy in these cases. I give them to lawyers now who do this all day long. I believe that topic really requires an expert. Well, we're going to give you about two minutes to get your energy back <laughs> so we can take a break and come back with Robert Heiserman, an immigration lawyer in the psychologist chair. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. Stay with us. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you lost, fed up, knowing you're better, and yet not knowing why? Let Derek O'Neill transform the not knowing into the knowing by showing you the way. Whether it's not being able to drop the excess weight to unhealthy relationships or finances that you know you deserve. Derek provides insights that are like magnets to invite what you want in your life and repel what you don't want. Tune into Derek now to discover how to improve your life immediately and unleash the winner that you know you are and others need to see. Listen Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are in the midst of a global sovereign debt crisis that could lead to the ultimate risk for the world economy, the removal of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. What will this event really mean to the markets? And more importantly, what does it mean for you and your family? Listen to Global Currency Watch with your host, Stephen Ayer, to get a full and objective look at the world's sovereign debt crisis and help you prepare for when the crisis envelops the United States. Global Currency Watch airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're back in the psychologist chair with Mr. Robert Heiserman, an immigration lawyer from the state of Colorado. 
who travels to so many places around the world, he's even lost count as to where he's been around the world. And in this segment, we're going to talk more about the personalities of the people who seek immigration from all the immigration lawyers, all 14,000 of them in the United States alone. Whether they're illegal in the United States or they're outside of the United States looking for legal status. What are some of the personality characteristics that you run into of people who would like to become Americans or immigrate to the United States and hope to become Americans or maybe just come to the United States to work, whether they become citizens or not? I am most impressed by one characteristic, persistence. I don't know exactly how to frame that in your field of personality traits, but the persistence I've learned from the clients I've met is amazing. You've worked with some pretty difficult cases and people that had legitimate reasons to want to come to the United States, maybe for medical attention, but they would be denied entry. What would be sometimes the reason for those denials? Simply cost. There's only so much time the government can make available to consider a case. If that case is not well presented initially, it may just go wrong from the beginning. But these are cases who may not be, be willing to stay in the United States, but still yet the United States government's concerned that they want to come to the United States and stay illegally anyway. Is that a correct way of wording that? Pretty well. It's, uh, it's just numbers. There are just too many applicants. The U.S. is a receiving country. There are many more people trying to get in than they can accommodate. They look for ways to sort those folks, and if they just don't get it right the first time, it's very hard to get it right after that. You mentioned earlier in one of the segments about the sophistication of documenting information about people. It's almost like a lot of people are profiled. And it's not just in the United States. It's all the other countries as well that have profiling systems. So if a person is making application, pretty much a person in that government position at the visa counter can type in a name and probably get a lot of information about that individual. Are there international connection between countries that share that kind of information too? I think the term that covers most of that is cross-platforming. There are different databases that interact and intersect with each other. So there is, an, uh, I believe if you read a lot in popular magazines, you see that there are about 700 databases when they count these things. Now, are you privileged to that as well? If you need to check somebody out, you can actually go to that same database and determine whether that con company that they're claiming to work for is a real company or if it's a bogus company? If it's law enforcement, we can't see any of that. We never see any of that. However, there's so much data out there. Uh, frankly, I think the way the uh, agencies I deal with look at things, they're happy to just go through Google and just see what pops up. Yeah, but Google is a system where anybody can put anything that they want. Sure, but it's a sifting mechanism. And again, it's down to the numbers. There's only so much time to consider an application. We do know that there are people that are bad people, that want to do bad things. And one of the things we know from many writings of psychologists like Dr. Martha Stout, uh, a psychologist who actually studies what in forensic psychology we call the psychopath or the sociopath. Clinically, it's referred to as the antisocial personality disorder. She talks about, of course, the characteristics that's measured by the hair psychometric, uh, the work by Semenow, 
all the characteristics of being charming, manipulative, exploitive. But she says that the one characteristic that really stands out with a psychopath is that pity me. Poor, poor me. Nobody understands me. Nobody likes me. I'm the one that's always suffering. How often do you come across that? Constantly. Uh, most of the people we see are overwhelmed by what they're facing. Their consequences are high. If it's business, which is most of my work, or entertainment, so they've got schedules. If it's athletics, they've got schedules. They've got things to do. Uh, they're just overwhelmed. So most people present that way. In an immigration lawyer's office, they also know that they're with people who understand that. And I'll, I'll just offer my, my perception on personalities and motivations. I think most of the time the lawyers do the best work when they're empathic and they can understand the view of the person who's overwhelmed, but they also say this will never work. You can't do that. But do they have alternatives of what they can do? They do, but most of it's extra legal or outside the law. So flexibility and spontaneity might not always be applicable. That's correct. Let's look at the personalities again. You, it doesn't matter whether a person's an extrovert or, or an introvert. It doesn't matter whether they think about what they're going to decide or whether they feel about it. Of course, we know all of those things can certainly be subject to influencing other people's opinions of them. Do you ever sometimes use your gut feelings? Yeah, and you rely on gut feelings? Absolutely. You were a professor at a law school. Where was that? University of Denver, College of Law. I had the grade book. That's why. And you, you um, also taught students about identifying particular behaviors. We did. In fact, in the law school that I attended, we had a, a psychology elective course, but I used it in my teaching. Uh, my two subjects were professional responsibility and immigration law. Tell me about professional responsibility. What would that constitute? That's the set of rules that tell lawyers what they ought to be doing. It's the set of rules that tells them in, the, in violation they lose their license, and it's also the set of rules about which claims are made against lawyers. So what you're doing is you're combining the laws with ethics and the scope of practice. It is. It's, very, it's really pretty simple the way I taught it. It was honesty, justice, and morality. That's quite remarkable. What about immigration law? How big of a coursework is it now? Can you actually do more than one course in immigration law? Is it a master's level program that's post-JD, Doctor of Jurisprudence, in immigration law? Has it become that scientific now? I don't know of a master's program. However, there are undergraduate courses taught entirely in Spanish in the U.S. So the immigration law course is taught entirely in Spanish. Well, that certainly is a topic. What is your take? on the fact that it's an American country, it's an English-speaking country, yet coursework is done in Spanish, which suggests that people don't even have to learn to speak the national language to become citizens or professionals. Well, there, there are two things that I'd like to point out in that, for that question. Number one is English is not a required language in the U.S. For someone becoming a U.S. citizen, they are required to demonstrate some basic proficiency with English, writing, listening, reading. When people go for their citizenship, there's a test that has to be given. And it's usually an oral exam, is it, or is it written? It's primarily oral. And is English the language where 
that test has demonstrated, or can it be in Arabic, French, Spanish, Russian, any other languages? There are a couple of rules. The easiest one is if you need somebody to help you understand the questions in your native language, you may have that. Does anybody ever examine the translator to make sure they're not giving the answers <laughs> to be said? They do, and I, I, have, a, <laughs> I, I, have, a, I have a story. If you, you know, we lawyers like to tell stories, but I was in a, uh, with a friend of mine, a judge. At one point, all of the court cases that he did were, with translators were recorded, and to save time in listening to his recorded cases, he would hit the off button when the translator was speaking. Unfortunately, he got out of sequence on one case recorded only the Korean language portion. They had to bring everybody back in. He said, just consider that an audition. Take it from the top. <laughs> the other thing that I love about the court system is when lawyers are cleverly able to get the information out, just so the judge will say, the jury will strike that last remark as if it's going to be struck. That's exactly what you want the judge to say, so they'll remember that last remark. It actually highlights it. Puts Big it up time. In, puts it up in the... Uh, Big time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot of interesting stories to tell, and I wish we had time to talk about a lot of them. The characteristics of people who want to come to the United States is usually honorable, because a lot of people see the United States as the greatest nation or one of the greatest nations to come to, which constitutes the love-hate relationship of the United States in that the United States is seen as a nation that provides and protects, it nourishes and bonds its people fairly, equally, objectively. That's through the Constitution. Unfortunately, sometimes our international principles don't replicate our constitutional mindedness. So we sometimes provoke a love-hate kind of a relationship. And for the most part, it's important for Americans and the world to know that the majority of people are good people. There are a few who are bad people. Unfortunately, that small number can reflect on a big number of people who don't deserve that kind of misrepresentation just because they may want to come from a particular country to the United States and unfortunately that particular country may not have a very comfortable relationship politically or diplomatically with the United States. What happens for you as an immigration lawyer to help persuade our government's finest people in the consulates and the embassies to actually help people get into the United States? That's the question we're going to be coming back to. Also, we want to have time to talk more about the Rotary International and the wonderful work that you're doing with that. And Robert Heiserman, before you go back to Colorado from Dubai, we're going to finish today's recording in the psychologist chair. Thank you very much for being here and hold on just a few more minutes so we can finish off the last segment. Happy to do that. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you ready to live a powerful life based in vitality, joyfulness, and satisfaction? Is it time to take action and design a life you've always known you could live? Tune it to Design Your Life, Coaching for New Choices with Master Certified Coach Patricia Hirsch. You'll explore what stops you from going after your dreams and be supported in a future you design to pull you forward from the present. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for Design Your Life, Coaching for New Choices on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and here we are for the last segment in the Psychologist Chair with Robert Heiserman, an immigration lawyer from Colorado who travels quite a bit. I ended the last segment with a statement. What is it that you're doing with the people that come from countries that may not have favorable ties with the United States? There are rules and rules. There are some countries that the U.S. will not engage with, uh, will not do business with, and will not grant visas with. In any way, shape, or form. No. So no matter where they come from, in that particular situation, needing to go to the United States for medical reasons, academic reasons, there's just no way. Is that what you're saying? I am, but it's. I wish it were that simple. This is one reason we have 14,000 lawyers. A person is a person. It is a finding of law that they have a passport or they have a nationality. There are people who are stateless. There are people who have given up their nationality. There are people who are running from their countries. Those people have to fit somewhere. And we those have, are asylum cases. Those are sometimes asylum, sometimes withholding of asylum. There are several different things. There's a principle of law called non-refoulement, which says that if someone washes up on your shore, you really should bring them out of the surf and do something with them. And that applies from 1981 to all nations, most all nations. And that particular law is called? That's an internet. That's the original asylum law. That's the, the basis for the original asylum law. And most asylum laws, if not all, are actually political. 
Uh, the term political asylum is in the statute. It's in the language, but it includes family relationship, religion. It includes associations. It includes a lot of things. It also suggests that there might be some other type of asylum. Absolutely. Uh, we don't have time to go into all the different kinds of asylum cases, but is there a system in place to protect American citizens and those who are enjoying residence on our country's ground when people are coming for bad asylum situations and could be of danger to other people? Yes, the system is the agency evaluates and researches and investigates these uh, applications before they're approved. And finally, there are judges, immigration judges, and they do the same thing. Tell me about young lawyers and young lawyers who are studying law at large, because law is a generic field. And it's not so much as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you can actually go into a specific kind of law study you study general law. Later, you may specialize. People who want to specialize in immigration law, what do they need to do? This is the advice I, I give. And in fact, I gave this advice yesterday at lunch with a young lady who's thinking the same, along the same lines. I said, take advantage of the general legal education. Find out what you like. Learn more about the law and the world and how you relate to it. And then make your decision later. One of the things that I was fortunate to have was a liberal arts education. And I'm of the contention that anybody who gets any university degree, especially undergraduate, should be liberal arts. A person who's going to get a university degree needs an opportunity to learn a little bit about everything. And of course, as a psychologist, I would love to see that people actually get at least one or two semesters in a general psychology course just to have a general idea about human behavior, human emotions, human cognition, even the chapter on how the body works and how our environment affects us. But another important course that needs to be taught, in my opinion, is law. And every undergraduate student, regardless of what they're going to major in, should have a course in human rights. And I'm talking about our civics course that we take in junior high or high school about what the Constitution is, our state history course that each state offers in the eighth grade or ninth grade or whatever grade that might be. What about a law course? You have selected to be an immigration lawyer. What do you want people to know about our great country, the United States of America, and all the other wonderful countries of this particular planet? Well, I'm from that village. I think they're good-hearted people who mean well. I think the government is generally competent. I'm not one to throw rocks at the government. Of course, I deal with them all the time, but my experience with them is they're quite good. They do carry out the will of the American people in their jobs. So they have patterns. They've got checklists. They've got things to do, and I think they spend almost all their time complying with what they're supposed to do. You're going to design a course for high school students or undergraduate students in university to have at least one course in law and your human rights. What would you include in that? What, I, what I'd include in that is an interactive element. Right from the, I've done this with high schools. I've gone in and asked them what they think the law is, what they think the justice system is, what they think judges do. And then we work backwards from their understanding because it's really very hard to go in and just put a list of things on people and ask them to grow with it. I find it easier to ask them where they are. 
How about these television programs on judge somebody and judge somebody else? And the judge system and that particular judge becomes somewhat of an icon of the jurisdiction suit. Is that more like a justice of the peace or is that a real court system as it is played out in the United States? Actually, it it, uh, it it resembles some things I've seen over my nearly 40 years of practice. It it does look like that. In a real court system? In a real court system. There's judges who actually are screamers? I, I've seen it. It's unusual. The system usually is so pressed and so stressed financially, they just don't take time. So they just try to get the cases. They keep the cases moving. So it, there's a little more luxury in the uh, TV dramas. In the field of psychology, whether you're doing clinical or forensic, because a lot of this is filmed in California, they have the opportunity to work with some of the most excellent professors from the California university system, whether it's UCLA, uh, University of California, Berkeley, San Diego, um, State University, all the wonderful universities that are, that are there, including Stanford, of course, some of these professors of psychology, forensics, medicine, law, are consultants to the film industry. Most of the films that are being done today and the sitcoms or the series take this pretty seriously. Unfortunately, there was one that was done recently called Lie to Me. It was the biggest fiasco. Some of my colleagues from one of the psychological societies were actually saying they had been approached to consult, and they said, this is not the way to do it. It's not going to work. And you're making mockery. Nobody can look at a body language and say, this one thing means something. I don't think the show is playing anymore. I'm not sure if it is. But it didn't survive as CSI and those other types of show. Even Dr. Phil, Dr. Ruth have done a wonderful job to help so many people. Of course, they're going to get criticized by colleagues who are probably jealous that they're not going to the bank every day with a bag full of money. But they do a major contribution. Lawyers, judges, have now an opportunity to teach people more about human rights, as you've done on this show today. Robert Heiserman, immigration lawyer from Colorado. Thank you so much for being in the psychologist chair. Thank you for inviting me. We'll look forward to having you on again as you do your many visits around the world and hopefully between Arizona, New York, Colorado, Dubai, all the other places, we'll get to meet again. I hope so. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. Join us the next time when we're going to have a screenwriter who's an actress talking about adult children of abuse. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're in the psychologist's chair today. And again, we thank Robert Heiserman, immigration lawyer from Colorado, for being with us. Thank you again for joining us this week for In the Psychologist's Chair. Please join Dr. Raymond Hamden for another edition next Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we speak again, hope you enjoy your week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.